All right. So today we're taking up from uh, the latter half of the service of the sacrament, service of Holy Communion, to the end of the service. And I want to start by asking you this question. What does it mean to say that you are what you eat? People say that sometimes. It's not always clear. What does that mean? You are what you eat. That's the first part of it. Part two, how has this been true in your life? Like, I am the Hamburglar, and I love hamburger. No. Uh, First of all, what do you understand that expression to mean, you are what you eat? You hear people... If you eat the wrong kind of food, then you're not going to be at your healthiest. Okay. You eat the wrong kind of food, you're not going to be at your healthiest. And I totally jive with that. Yeah. May I be totally irreverent? By all means. You heard me in the sermon today, so... In the, in the beauty shop, and they were talking about this, you are what you eat, and Wes says, well, that's why I don't eat much turkey. <laughs> and then, Matt Albrecht says, you must eat a lot of ham. <laughs> <laughs> I go in there, I don't even need a haircut, I go in there just for this kind of banter. It's so good. So that's well, that's how it's been. No, that's how it's been true. Well, so this, so there, it's this idea. Narrowly speaking, it's you know what you eat. That's kind of how you're going to be. But I think I think there's a, a broader kind of application to it, where it's the things that you take in, the things that you consume, um, have a transforming effect on you. Not just food, of course, but also you know. What are you watching on TV? What are you listening to on the, on the radio? What are the books that you're reading? What are the voices that you're, that you're listening to? You are what you eat. Uh, what's I don't mean the voices that you hear, Pete. I'm talking about... I want to hear it. <laughs> uh, but all of these different kinds of ways. But when we put that statement in the context of worship, it takes on a very different kind of meaning and understanding. And in a sense, it summarizes the whole of what God is up to in our gathering for worship. So let's pick it up with the Agnus Dei. And um, maybe you've wondered or been one of those phrases that you're afraid to say because you're like, what is the proper way to say it? And there isn't one proper way to say it. But if you're pronouncing it with the Latin, um, it would be Agnus Dei. So Latin does that funny thing there, Agnus Dei, or if you say Agnus Dei, nobody's going to uh, look at you funny. Um, But from the Latin just means Lamb of God. And the Agnus Dei adores the Savior who is really present. Adores the Savior who is really present. And you guys know this, we say each and every week, Lamb of God, you take away the sin of the world, have mercy on us. Twice that, and then the last time, that last line changes to grant us peace. When we say the, the Agnus Dei, the Lamb of God, what biblical personage is that putting us in the place of? Who is it that most famously announced that or said that? John the Baptist. John the Baptist, yes. Who said, I mean, it's, I almost have to laugh a little bit when you read it. It's like John the Baptist having a conversation with some people. Jesus walks by like, hey, hey, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world? And we're like... John, we were talking about dinner plans for tonight, but... Uh, um, locust. The lo- locust, that's right. <laughs> Do we want locusts or grasshoppers, or are they the same thing? Um, now, I read yeah. it like that was one of the first times that phrase had been used in reference to Jesus. Correct, yes. Was it a, was it, was it a term used for other people, or is this like a whole new construct that John Baptist 
came up with. Yeah, this is a great question. So Chip's question is, is, this, is John kind of bringing something out whole cloth? This is something that hadn't been heard before, or is this an established thought and idea? And the answer is, it's a little bit of both, for sure. So you have, going back to, I've got the verse here from Isaiah 53, this really pivotal chapter and section in the book of Isaiah where the prophet says, referring to this servant, suffering servant character, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. What was unique about when Isaiah brought that out of course, the idea of the lamb and the sacrificial lamb, this goes way back to um, the Passover and also to the, the Day of Atonement. So that idea was fixed in the minds of God's people. What Isaiah introduces now is the, the thought that a person could be like a suffering lamb. And there's a couple other places, I think, in the Psalms that use similar sort of language. So it was there to the what extent was it kind of at the forefront of the, of the people's minds, I think it probably wasn't a huge picture that they used. Yeah. But hadn't they been sacrificing lambs for, yes. for a long time? Yeah, from time eternal. Um, but I think what is the real um, paradigm shift, if I can use that, that phrase here, with the way that John is bringing it, and also that Isaiah, is that this would be not only a person, but that this would be the Messiah. That the Messiah would also be the Lamb of God. So the idea that there needs to be a sacrifice on our behalf, that makes sense. But the thought that the Messiah, the coming king, was going to be that lamb, that is what kind of blows their minds. Yeah, Ann. Well, this is going back a couple minutes in our conversation. But the way he says that when he sees him yeah. strikes me like a knee-jerk reaction. Yes. Like when Elizabeth and Mary um, yeah. met together. Right. Where it's kind of like, oh, whoa. Yes, yeah, I think, I think that's he's true. Gotta he's he's got to react. He's got to react. He's well, in this presence. He's had this reaction from the time that he was in the womb, right? You know, like you say, when Mary goes to visit Elizabeth and, you know, John leaps for joy in the womb, it says. And so he's kind of had this visceral reaction whenever Jesus is around. He, he just, he can't control. They're not the Lamb of God. Uh, he takes away the sin of the world. Um, he's Kramer. He's Kramer. <laughs> Giddy up. Uh, I kind of picture him that way, actually. Um, but who takes away the sin of the world. Now, a question for you here. Why is, it, why is it in the singular rather than the plural there? Who takes away the sin, singular, of the world rather than plural? Takes away the sins of the world, which is what you would expect him to say. He forgives our sins. What is, it, what is that getting at there? Original sin. Okay, original sin. So... That we're all, well, we're all born with sin. Right. But then throughout our life, we commit many sins. We commit sins. Very good. So the, the distinction here is kind of there is that fundamental um, original guilt and inclination to sin. It's the principle of sin in the world. And then there's all those particular concrete sins, plural, that we commit. And um, if we could think of it like this, Jesus doesn't just kind of um, put band-aids on all the particular sins. He goes right to the root of it. He, he uh, does radical surgery, going right to the source of it, uprooting sin as such, and not just dealing with individual sins. 
And I think that that's already um, implicit in the way that John puts that here. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That fundamental, essential sin that has infected creation. It's a profound statement already right there. And it's, there's a reason that it's been kind of encoded in our worship then in the Agnus Day, and why we say it each and every week. Because it's kind of like if you, uh, you know, as, as we age or in other situations, there's nothing else that we can remember about who Jesus is and what he has done for us. It's like we're going to repeat this at least three times every single week so that we don't forget it. Who is Jesus? He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Boom. Ding, ding, ding. That's what you need to know about who he is for you. Right. It's good news. It's very good news. So we sing, we sing that week by week. And also, I should say, um, as I indicate in, in the, the sentence there, the Agnus Dei adores the Savior who is really present. A um, little bit of the, the history of the Agnus Dei. Um, it was introduced into the church's liturgy around the 7th century A.D., so you know, 1,300 years ago. Um, it originally served kind of a practical purpose, like a lot of these different parts of the liturgy do. Like, okay, we need to do or sing something while the pastor is you know, going up to the pulpit. Or we need to um, sing something while we're all gathering in. And so, likewise, this is what they would sing while the pastor was preparing the elements for Holy Communion. Um, <clears throat> Reformed churches, other churches that didn't believe in what we call the real presence that Christ is truly in with and under the bread and wine, took this part, after the Reformation, took this part out of the liturgy because it's this bold confession of Christ present here for us. The Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world right here. See? We believe that, we retain that. Other churches are a little bit more hesitant to do so, and so they take it out. So it's just a little bit interesting history and, and background to it. It all depends on what the meaning of the word is. It all depends on the meaning of the word is. It does, and I mean, but it's also embedded in a larger kind of biblical imagination and worldview that sees that God operates through the stuff of creation. That he, he created this world good, and he doesn't just want to deal with us in kind of floaty spiritual ways, but in you know, physical, tangible ways been this way forever so i mean in that sense it it hinges on is but that is doesn't come out of the clear blue sky it's consonant with how god works and operates yeah all right so we've received we've we've sung the um the agnus day and then we proceed into the actual distribution and receiving of communion and there's a couple of points i want to just um bring out about this um so number three the posture of receiving Holy Communion is itself an embodiment of faith. It's an embodiment of faith. Um, here's what I mean by that. When we come and we receive, when we receive communion, we put our hands out like this, right? Put your hands out to receive the body and blood of Christ. And Luther would say that this, this is the purest expression of faith. What is faith? Faith are the empty hands that uh, are there to receive the gifts of God. And so I think it's a beautiful thing when we, when we do that, when we gather together, when we receive the sacrament, just to have these open hands. Uh, I was reading uh, one early church father by the name of Cyril. He suggests you put your left hand like a throne and then your right hand on top of it 
and it's like receiving the king upon his throne. That's cool. I can go with that. Uh, <laughs> but the upshot is basically the same. You know, you put your, your hands on it. This is why I'm looking around. I don't think anybody in this room does it. There's a couple of folks, though. I need to talk to them. Uh, what, I think it's inappropriate or at least improper to just grab when you're receiving communion. You know, um, like, here, give me that. I appreciate the impulse. You want it so badly, you just want to grab it. But there's something about having your hands out like this that just habituate you, if I can use a $5 word, to that life of faith. It's about receiving, not grabbing. God gives, we receive. It's not that big of a deal, but it's just something to, to keep in mind. Yeah, Carla. Historically, we used to, the pastor would actually put it, put the host yeah. in your mouth. Uh, right. when, did it, when did that shift and change? Yes, so this is, this is a fascinating little historical anecdote as well. So Carla brings up that, um, you know, historically, the pastor would just take the host and put it right onto your tongue, mm -hmm. right onto your mouth. Um, so this started at some point in the Middle Ages. Can't pin down a, um, a precise time on it. But um, it was after the doctrine of transubstantiation really took hold, which was in, uh, I think, 11th century, the 1000s. So about 1,000 years ago. And transubstantiation is that Roman Catholic doctrine that says um, the, the bread and wine lose their bread and wineness and turn into Jesus' body and blood. Thus, they have things like the Corpus Christi Festival, which means the Body of Christ Festival, where they would take a host and put it in what they call a tabernacle, um, or not a tabernacle, a, um, there's a fancy name for it, but this, this big thing, and they would parade it around in the streets, and the people would kind of worship as though Jesus himself were there. Okay? Um, but as another unintended consequence of this doctrine, Folks would receive the host and not eat it because they thought, if I can get a little piece of Jesus, that's got to be really good for just kind of, I mean, in an age before you had um, Simply Safe and, you know, Brinks or whatever, um, like if I want a security system for my house, what could be better than the body of Christ tacked up over my door? And so people were receiving uh, these hosts and basically doing superstitious practices with them. And so um, the leaders of the church were like, okay, this is, this is bad. This is not what we intended. And so they said, all right, Frank, here's what we got to start doing. When they come up to receive communion, they're going to open their mouth. You just put it right into their mouth. Make sure that they swallow it, okay? And I, it's, I mean, it's a crude thing, but this was, this was the origin of it. Like a dog. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> So why is it called a host? Uh, there's a Latin etymology for that, but I can't uh, offer it at the moment. Um, but that is, that's kind of, now it became more of a pious thing of, again, just accentuating that reception. Like, I'm not even, I'm nothing do I bring to the table here. I just open my mouth. It calls to mind Psalm 81. It says, open wide your mouth and I will fill, fill it, declares the Lord. So I can interpret it in a pious, you know, kind of way. But its history, its origins are, are kind of funny out of uh, some superstition there. So, so do any Lutheran churches still do that? Or is it a... Yes. Well, I don't know. There that, are some that do that? Yeah, I'm, there's definitely individual Lutherans at, and maybe some churches that en masse practice it. I mean, yeah, there's, I mean, there's folks in our church who do that. And there's nothing wrong with that. Um, so, yeah, but uh, it's just, it's not as common, I would say, in, in the last 
several decades. Yeah, Court. I had heard that 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 was done so that it didn't drop on the floor because you didn't want Jesus to. Sure. Now, I mean, I guess that, that can go There's along with it too. Yeah. yeah. No, and I mean, um, it would be the job of the acolyte at one time to follow behind with a. Um, a little tray. A little tray, yeah, to make sure. So, I mean, these are our pious practices that accentuate Christ's real presence. So, Lutherans, we've always tried to toe this fine line. On the one hand, we are not having just a, a symbolic or memorial meal here. But on the other hand, um, we're not worshiping the bread and wine itself. It's that Christ is truly mysteriously present in, with, and under the bread and wine. And we want to honor that with proper reverence but not to the extent that it, would become, it becomes idolatry, basically. So to better and, and worse uh, extents, we continue to, to do that. When did we shift to the hand from the directive? I mean, if I, if I had to I don't know that for sure, but if I had to guess, I would say it probably, like a lot of things, post-Vatican II, um, it was where things just in general became a little bit more informal. Um, if I had to guess, but I, I don't know for sure. Yeah. That was the 60s? That was in the 60s. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. My church growing up, we didn't, we, we never put our hands out. And so, yeah, yeah. So we took it directly. But we were pretty, pretty high church, pretty pious church. Yeah. But I think now that I've gone there, I don't see very, I see very few people doing that. So right. For me, I've seen it like in the last. 25 years or so change a lot. Yeah, so. yeah. So, I mean, that make, makes sense, that, that time frame. Uh, so this is really, you know, just whether it's with the open mouth or whether it's with open hands, in both cases, it's really just expressing that this is the fundamental posture of faith. It's receptivity. It's like Jesus says in the, the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's recognizing and affirming, I'm broke. I'm spiritually broke and bankrupt. And I'm here simply and solely to receive from the Lord. As St. Paul rhetorically asks the Corinthians, what do you have that you did not receive? And the answer, of course, that he's expecting is nothing. Nada. Everything you have comes purely and solely as gift. Okay, one other point uh, just on the distribution itself. Number four on, on page two of your handout. Our communion comes in two dimensions. I got my whiteboard out. That's okay. You can picture this. Uh, what I mean by that in the, in the two dimensions is both, so to speak, the vertical dimension of our relationship with God and also the horizontal dimension of our relationship with one another. That we, as the body of Christ, receive the body of Christ. We are what we eat, who we eat. Right? We have this communion with the Lord, but it's also shared with one another. Side by side, as, as we stand together side by side. And this to me is, I think, um, well, two, two practices that, that accompany this and, and help to reinforce it. One is receiving the Lord's Supper in tables, which is to say, you know, with others at the same time. It's interesting, I was re doing some reading on this this week, and more than one um, author suggested that doing the continuous distribution, like we do in the summertime, that that more emphasizes our unity at the table because we're all kind of just a, a, all going at once. That isn't how I thought about it, but I don't know. What do you think? Which I think both of the practices are fine and can have pros and cons, both practical pros and cons as, as well as theological ones. But 
Which, which of those two, to you, more emphasizes that kind of unity as we are receiving and celebrating the sacrament? I like, I like the going up to the altar. Uh-huh. One of the things I did like in our culture, we had continuous communion sometimes. Yeah. But the pastor was, you would do a continuous as a couple or as a family. Oh, okay. So, like, we would both go up and he'd give it to both of us, and then we would both take it. Kind of a modified and continuous. That, and that kind yeah. of felt, at least, we were commuting together. Sure. Okay. But um, I, I kind of like the one up the Coming up together. Good. Oh. Yeah, Pete. Oh, thank you. Um, it just strikes me as interesting, I guess, that either tradition or what we're used to or expedience uh, are the order of why we do what we do as opposed to what it really means. Sure, yeah, right. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of things that we'll do um, for, the, for the sake of, well, this is just how we got to do it. Yeah, we went to that, that continuous out of a time constraint. Right, exactly. <laughs> you know? But I'm, I'm loving to hear this. I, I wish I had thought of that. Well, it's, and it's not, it's not an illegitimate concern. You know, it's something you have to take into consideration. Um, you don't want it to be the only concern or the well, yeah, primary but, one. But sort of not because, I mean, what, what are we really doing it for in the first place? To get it over with quickly? Right. You know? <laughs> you, must, you must be a pastor. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yes, Sarah. Um, what's interesting is that my old church that I grew up going to, we've gone to it recently, and they allow you to either go up at the altar or do continuous. Interesting. So they have the continuous thing going, and it is, it's a huge church. So yes, There right. could be like a thousand people there. Right. So you're, you can do continuous, but the people who want to can go right up to the altar, and then they have people there giving you communion. Huh. So you could do it just as your own family. Yeah together, but it is kind of interesting because only a couple people will do that. Most people will just do it. Sure. Wow. It's really hard to cover all bases and do everything. <laughs> yeah. um, Especially in the church our size. Yeah. Like just a practical. Yeah, yeah right. It wouldn't would make any and sense. And the space. And the, the space yeah. is a big part of it too. Yeah, Chelsea. Um, it's kind of not related, but kind of is one thing that I miss about this church is that we don't kneel. I agree. Yeah. Can, and that is something different that every church at Ben Am before you always kneel. And so it does take away kind of the mm -hmm. factor of it too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's true. I'm we with uh, Connie Masick and the research that she had done with the preservation committee, she was pulling out some older pictures because I was like, there has to be a point at which people used to kneel. Right. And and this is what I learned, and some of you know this already. This is fascinating and kind of takes to a whole nother level because it's like, where would the kneeler have been? Would it have been at kind of where the communion rail's at? No. There was a small kneeler which stood perpendicular to the altar. Okay? So this is the altar. There was a kneeler right here. I can't remember if there was one or two. I think there was just one though. Like the like the pulpit, the high one? <clears throat> What's that? The high one? The altar. Altar. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. So in, in, front, in front of the altar. So just a kneeler. So people would come up one by one. You'd, you'd kneel down, receive communion. You'd go around the altar. Well, that's where you can go around You'd it. go behind, behind the altar. And then, there was a higher thing. Because I remember that's when Ted removed it. Because yeah. there was that higher thing. There was a step up yeah, to the altar. And oh, there was. People would trip over it because you would be yeah. sure. serving communion. Yeah. You have to remember to step down. Yeah. Yeah. And, there, and you can't go behind it. You really can't, that's where you can't go behind it. Yep. You could. That's where we store the bones of previous pastors. But individual communion. So, yes. Oh, 
That's crazy. Isn't that fascinating? There's still a kneeler hidden on the oh. altar that is often used for weddings. It's the only time I've ever seen it. Well, that's, that's we it. Have, I'll have to go check that out. We have, so check we have the kneeler. Yeah, the kneeler. Yeah, there's two kneelers downstairs, too. Okay. We decided it was probably from that. Yeah. Yeah. So it wasn't the the railing there. Not that I've seen. I have not seen any pictures I that have. Would, like, clove, like, you'd make it one big long railing. And right. It would make sense. And I think we, if we ever wanted to, I think I we could do I that. I don't but. think it was ever closed off for communion. I right. don't see oh, okay. anything on there that you know, mm, like okay. see screw holes yeah, yeah. or nails or something. I don't think there's. Got to do some archaeology on it. But um, but but either side. Yeah. You know. It's it's a fascinating thing to think about. But I think um, the point being, when we receive the communion, I think it is helpful and salutary to remember this isn't just a me and Jesus moment, but it is me along with these fellow believers that, you know, shoulder to shoulder or, you know, uh, in, standing in line, um, we come together to receive. Yeah, Carla. I think, too, it's not just those who are currently present. Totally, yes. We're communing with all the saints. That's right. And so when we talk about the communion of saints, um, that's, that's what that's getting at, is that there's a communion, a fellowship with all those, therefore with angels and archangels, and with all the company of heaven. All the company of heaven is those saints who have gone before us already, who are, are joining with us. I've mentioned this before, that in um, uh, many churches, the churchyard or the church cemetery would be on the other side of the chancel wall. And that's the idea, is that it's like we're all joined together. Mm -hmm. well, I thought that was interesting during John Stubbins' funeral that he did that because... That we did, had communion? Yeah, had communion, yes. and, I, and I just kind of liked it because I thought that is when actually communion is with the head right. again the first time. Right. And I just thought that was a really yeah. interesting thing. Yeah, uh, it's right. I, that was the first time I had ever had communion as part of a funeral, yeah. but it, you know, it, it kind of makes sense in, in that way. Mm -hmm. Um, and, yeah, and it seems like the space when when you go up to the inside of the chancel area there, it seems like you're in a special place. Yes. And as a parishioner, you don't often get to go up there, and so I think as a kid, you like to go up there because you can see things you couldn't yeah. see before. It seems special, and you're kind of like almost in a circle, so you kind of feel like I yeah. think of like the heavenly host. Sure. You feel, I feel like like it just feels like you're in a special place where you can. Commune, right? You know, it's more like a special dinner you're having there, as opposed yeah. to a drive-through. Sure. Where you just <laughs> right. Like that. You know, it's, it's a sit-down, like, not a not like, a fast like it food. It doesn't work, but as far as psychologically, yeah. you feel like, oh, this is something special, <clears throat> as opposed to you know, like the most expedient. Way yeah, possible. I think that's true. Yeah. Chris. Yeah, I like the, the going up to the altar more mm -hmm. because, I mean, I guess that's just what I'm used to. But yeah, it feels like you're in like a circle with. Yeah. Like, all the, all the other people, and mm -hmm. it, yeah, it kind of feels like a drive-through when you're doing the sure. continuous. Yeah. But, I mean, they both work, so. Well put. <laughs> that, it's well put. Yeah, Pete. So if I could go back to this two-dimension thing, which, boy, that, that seems to help me a lot, and I'm wondering, in 1 Corinthians 11, when St. Paul says, verse 29, anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment right. upon himself. Yep. Do you, it's tacit, I would guess, but do you think he's tacitly addressing the two dimensions there? Absolutely, yes. And I mean, Paul, um, so Pete's question is, in that famous passage in 1 Corinthians 11, um, you can go ahead and open it. You've you got Bibles, it's Bible study. Um, first, 1 Corinthians 11. Let's not push it, okay? Let's not push it. I don't want to get paper cut. 
What is this one? Are you saying that like by body he means both? Yes. I think so. It, notice this. First Corinthians eleven. Um, this so this in the context here. There's two things going on. On the one hand, Paul is addressing um, strife and issues within the Corinthian congregation, ways that they are not um, caring for one another in love. Uh, he, he's talking about in verses 17 through through 22. Um, so in, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Here he really sounds like a good Italian. Or, ah! Or, you know, kind of a New York Jew, something like that. <laughs> you despise the church of God, humiliate those who have nothing. Come on, forget about it. Anyway, um, they, there, was a lot, there was class dynamics going on here too in Corinth uh, where you had folks who were more of an upper crust and they, of society and they wouldn't be getting together normally with, with these lower class folks. And so there is this horizontal concern that Paul has. But now, and this is the move that Paul so often makes, he's going to root these horizontal concerns, not just, he's not just going to double down on the horizontal and just kind of make like a social justice move or something like that. Instead, he's going to root those horizontal concerns in the, the vertical theological reality of the Lord's Supper. And thus he goes on to recount the words of institution, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Then he makes that key move, verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Verse 29 there, he doesn't say, who eats and drinks without discerning the body and the blood. Why does he not say that? I think because he is trying to be purposely, purposefully ambiguous, or, or put it this way, that it's, it's a double entendre, that it's, it's covering both at the same time. If you eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, the real presence in the Lord's Supper, you denigrate also uh, the Lord's Supper if you don't recognize his body present in this gathered assembly. It's not either or. I think it's both and. And I think that the horizontal finds its, its source and strength in that vertical. Does that make sense? Well, it does. And, and the reason I bring it up is because this was a big controversy in the town that we lived in there in Pleasant Hill. Because there was a church that had a big mass communion service of all anybody come. Mm -hmm. um, and they wondered why I wouldn't go. Yeah. And... It was because I didn't see the discerning of right. the body of Christ right. in in its two-dimensional yeah uh, in its two-dimensional presence yeah I, and and churches can go off off on both ways here only focusing on the the vertical to the extent that it's almost like you denigrate the the gathered Christians who are right there and almost treat them as non-Christians. Or, on the other hand, make it just about, hey, this is kind of our nice family time here, and I don't want the Lord to interrupt and you know, ruin this. We're, you know, we're having a nice... Um, God is not invited. Yeah, so um, <laughs> as though all that mattered was just us having good feelings. Like, we want to affirm both of those, that this is the Lord's Supper, it's not our Supper. And so he's the one who has the right to invite and gather together the people, but also to, um, to honor that. And, uh, yeah, go ahead, Ann. 
Uh, can you talk about uh, churches where children, like small children, yeah. are invited to commune? Oh, to actually receive communion? Yes. Yeah. So this has become more common in the Missouri Synod um, in the last decade or so, to the extent that there's even been resolutions about it um, in convention. Um, it's something that, to my understanding, has really spilled over from influence of Eastern Orthodoxy, of all things. Because um, Eastern, in Eastern Orthodoxy, um, even in, infants, baptized infants, receive communion. I think just through like, some intention, just a you know, very, very small amount. Um, and the argument for it is pretty straightforward. It's that, okay, they're baptized, they're part of the body of Christ. Why should they be denied to receive Holy Communion. Okay. Uh, the contrary argument um, that has you know, traditionally held sway is that you need to be able to examine yourself. Um, that doesn't mean that you're not any less part of the church because you're not yet receiving the Lord's Supper. It's just recognizing, hey, to receive this well and faithfully, um, you need to be able to have some uh, self-reflection about it. Um, I'm not quite sure where I fall on it. I mean, I, I tend to be a you know, traditional Lutheran in this regard, but I can see the argument from the other side. But I don't know, do any of you have thoughts about that, or is that something that you've considered before? Well, yeah. it was instituted among adults. Yeah, so that's true. That's kind of where I come from. Now, the, uh, some would say, well, just like baptism. Baptism was instituted among adults, mm -hmm. right? So just to kind of play devil's advocate but there, there. But there's an additional scripture that says yes. baptizing all nations. Correct. Yes, that's true. That's true. No, that's a, that's a good point, that this meal was celebrated and instituted among adults for those who were recognized and discerning the body in that sense. Yeah, Court. I'm glad God is so forgiving. <laughs> right? Is this a sin boldly? This is a sin boldly. Uh, I mean, well, honestly, it's these sorts of things where I think Christians of goodwill can disagree about it. I, and uh, you, you... It, yeah, you're, stri you're striving to be faithful to what we've received. I mean, I, I get it for those who, who want to do it. I don't think that you have to commune your, your babies. If somebody did that, I mean, actually, I'd be floored if somebody came up to you know, the Lord's Supper here at Trinity Lutheran and like you know, tried to commune their baby. Like, okay, cool. Uh, <laughs> but I just, you, don't, you don't expect to, to see it. Yeah, Ann? Well, when you're a child, it's so much easier than when you're an adult to not think about things logically. Sure. Oh, this is Jesus? That's true, yeah. No, I mean, and, right, Ellie's doing that. Children are, and you know, when you see children reaching out for it. Yeah, I know, you, I kind of want to give it to him. Uh, Miles today was so so sweet. He looked so pious, he was there. Oh, God bless him. I mean, he Yeah, is, right. You know, oh, he's a grabber. Yeah. I mean, he's a grabber, that's right. No, put your that's her. right. So, I know that you can hear me over there. Um, so, like, uh, actually, a friend of mine is a pastor who now is a Greek Orthodox pastor, oh, huh? Josh uh, Gainey. Yeah. He communed his daughter when he asked his daughter, you know, what's communion? And he goes, that's where you get Jesus. He's like, you're in. I mean, and so she was, I yeah. think, in second grade or first grade when she got communion, you know, maybe even preschool even. But she could articulate yeah. that that's what Jesus was. So, what I, what, what I like about it, and I'm not sure how early you would go, right. what, what, what I like about it is it, it de-emphasizes our intellectual yes. assent to yeah. what is going on, like yeah. our participation in it. Like it's really, you're receiving it. Yes. People that do do it, have you know, their argument is like, why would you not want to yeah. 
deny your child. Why would you is, want to deny your child? Yeah, why would you want to like you know this is you know like, you know you know. Yes. You know, as 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 one pastor said, many other things by the time they're in eighth grade have passed those 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 are lips that you don't want to. Right. Exactly. So why would you want to deny the one you know something yeah. like so? It, That's fair enough. No, it, it's a higher view of what God's doing in it. Sure. I think what for me would be the hard part would be I think the disruption at the table of kids taking it. You know what I mean? Which would yeah. make it just like a practically like you know. If a kid's taking it and they're spitting it out or they're just goofing, like becomes more, it maybe makes it less serious. I'm not sure that. Well, and this is where kind of the informal rule of thumb that I got from my teacher, Pastor Joel Bierman, and uh, the the Wolves pastor as well. His his rule of thumb was when they can come to the table and not laugh when they get some wine, then they're ready to receive communion. (laughs) You know, if they're if they're giggling still, like oh, then they're probably not ready yet. Right. And you know. There's something to that. But I do love just that simple childlike faith. Um, it's interesting, too, how it's kind of gone the totally other direction where once upon a time, not that long ago, kids wouldn't even come up with the parents, um, which seems kind of crazy to me. Like, let's just leave them here and see if everything works out okay. <laughs> but, yeah, Eileen. No, you're right. There's nothing magical about eighth grade. For, I think for some kids, they're ready a lot younger, and others are probably still not ready. So, like, yeah. so, like you said, it's the grace of God. I mean, I went for this years is true. to communion without really understanding it. Yep. It's a God let me do it. Yep. <laughs> That's right. Good. Good. All right, let's let's forge ahead. We got about ten minutes left, and uh, we'll we'll tie a knot on this thing. So number five, the nunc dimittis, some more Latin there. Now you let announces that now we can go in peace. And this is you know Simeon's song, Lord. Now you let your servant go in peace. Your word has been fulfilled. And um, you guys are familiar with this story. It comes up this time of year. Uh, from Luke 2, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God. Um, it's often kind of assumed and in portrayals of Simeon that he was an old man when this happened. It doesn't actually say that. It just says that he wouldn't die before it happened. So, I mean, he could have been like 25, um, but that would be, you know, kind of strange. Like, I'm going to die until, when is this going to, oh, okay. Now I, can. I always wondered how long did he live after that. <laughs> yeah, right. It's true. <laughs> but this is, kind of, I mean, that expression, now I can die in peace, comes from Simeon. It comes from, from this this story. And I mean, this is where I thought it was just really um, lovely in a way, a few weeks ago when Brother Steben passed away, where he had come, he had received the Lord's Supper, and we had sung that. He came to Bible study, and uh, I mentioned this in, the, uh, in the, his funeral sermon. He's the last, he had the last question in Bible study, um, and, uh, and, and went out, and the Lord took him, just like that. Um, but uh, he, it was a Simeon moment. Now your servant goes in peace. And uh, I, I mean, it maybe sounds kind of morbid to say, 
Okay, that, every week when we leave worship, it's like saying, all right, I'm ready to go. Um, but that's, a, that's essentially the, the message that we're receiving. Like, okay, I, I can go in peace whenever you want to take me, Lord. So there you go. You have been well outfitted and prepared. <laughs> Put that on our sign outside. Put that on our sign. Right. You could die after a service. <laughs> after our pastor we preaches. You. Yes. After he preaches, you'll be ready to go. Yes. <laughs> we don't have enough letters. <laughs> right. uh, I'm not sure that that would be real encouraging for people to come. It's a different church growth strategy. Good sure. <laughs> it's good work for our, our, our cemetery, though. Yeah. <laughs> um, our, you our real estate business we have. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Moving right along. Um, <clears throat> number six, then. Okay, so we have the, the Nunc Dimittis. There's also this other song that we um, sing sometimes, just called, you know, thank, thank the Lord. Thank the Lord and sing his praise. Tell everyone what he has done. Let all who seek the Lord rejoice and proudly bear his name. He recalls his promises and leads his people forth in joy with shouts of thanksgiving. Alleluia, alleluia. Very well done, very well done. I love this. I, I think it's a recent addition to the liturgy, but I think it's a, a, a beautiful addition, um, just like this is the feast. And it, um, it comes from Psalm 105. Give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples. But it points out, number six on your handout, it, it gives a sense of receiving the Lord's redemption compels witness. Thank the Lord and sing his praise. Tell everyone what he has done. And so it has this kind of cent centrifugal motion to it that now we move outward from this place to share the good news. Yeah, Leslie. That means that everybody in this room should be out caroling this afternoon. At ah, very good. Yeah. I'll... Well, Glad to have but, a plug there. But, yeah. the, but the musical settings, uh, even the other one, uh, thank the Lord and yes. sing. They're dances. They're jubilant, yeah. They, they are literally musical dances. Yeah. And sometimes we just get them so droned sure. down and slow. Mm. But they are. They're to be sung and <clears throat> joyous. You know? I'm still not going to let you do that liturgical dance you were asking yeah. about. But yes, you're right. <laughs> oh, we want to see it for Christmas. It's for Christmas. It's the unitard. <laughs> yeah, right. But there, yeah, I almost like the setting too. Better. Thank the Lord and sing His praise. I mean, so jubilant, exultant. The kids dance. Uh, what's that? Children the dance. kids well, yeah, dance. Yeah. You watch them and Ellie they scamper about, and it's like that's how we're supposed to be. Yeah, that's right. Um, the Psalm 107. I, I love this line. The simple line from Psalm 107: "Let the redeemed of the Lord say so." You know, you're redeemed. Say Amen. it. Yeah. Tell, tell people. You can say it. It's okay. First Peter 2.9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Okay. Hide it under a bushel basket? No. Gonna let it shine. So that thank the Lord kind of uh, prepares us for that, primes us for that. All right. Number seven. Talked of that two-dimensional um, kind of reception. There's a two-dimensional discipleship that's suggested in our post-communion collect or prayer. So number seven, the sacrament strengthens us in two-dimensional discipleship. This is the, the prayer. There's actually more than one, but this is the one that we mostly uh, tend to pray. We give thanks to you, Almighty God, that you have refreshed us through the salutary gift. And we implore you that of your mercy you would strengthen us through the same in faith toward you, 
and in fervent love toward one another. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, etc. Um, in the simplest kind of way, this summarizes what the Christian life is about. Two dimensions. Faith toward God, fervent love toward your neighbor. It, that's kind of how it goes. That's the, the rhythm of faith that we've been talking about throughout the study, that we receive and respond. Receive and respond. We've received these gifts. Now send us out, Lord, to respond in love toward others. And it really it kind of encapsulates when Jesus gives, what, you know, they ask, what's the greatest commandment in the law? And he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Um, and this, this duality of faith and love, when you start looking for it, it shows up several times in the New Testament. To give just a couple other examples, Second Timothy, Paul says, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And Colossians 1 we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. Both those hand in hand. Two more points. Number eight, bringing us back to where we began, the benediction sends us out in God's name. You remember we started with the invocation, right? Calling upon the name of the Lord in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. At the end, we conclude with the benediction, the Lord bless you and keep you, and so forth. Well, notice this from Numbers 6, where that comes from. Um, it's called the Aaronic benediction, not ironic, but Aaronic. Um, the Lord says, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, and there's the benediction. And then it says, So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. So that in the benediction, it's that name is being applied once again, and we're being sent out bearing the name of the Lord. That triune name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And notice that's that threefold Lord. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord look upon you with favor and give you peace. There's a Trinitarian pattern to that there as well. So we start in God's name. We are sent in God's name. Finally, we receive the body of Christ to be the body of Christ. And I always love this line from the hymn, Sent Forth by God's Blessing. Sent forth by God's blessing, our true faith confessing, the people of God from his dwelling take leave. The supper is ended, oh, now be extended, the fruits of this service in all who believe. That's the idea, is that now we've received this supper, may the fruits of this service be extended through our lives of love for our neighbor. Yeah, Pastor Pete. So Luther's... Um, meanings to each of the third three articles of the Apostles' Creed uh -huh. resonate with these three as well. Uh, the the blesser and keeper. Oh, good. Is the Father's sure. Work. The graciousness uh, we see in the in Christ the shining face is certainly second article stuff, and third article is this peace. Yeah. That um, the Spirit gives us. Yes. As we. Uh, as we live among God's people. Yeah. So it's kind of an interesting... Uh, Intertwining. Like you said, beginning and ending. Yeah, bracketing of it. This whole bookended thing around our Trinitarian God. That's right. Very good. Very good. Well, thus concludes our study of Lutheran worship. I hope this has been uh, profitable and edifying for you. We'll take off next Sunday, and then in the new year, we'll start with the Book of Acts. Look forward to seeing you then. God bless.